Well, guys, holy hell. (laughs) What an unbelievable week. Like, I'm not even quite sure where to start because it already feels like a million years ago that we even had the results in Georgia, which changed control of the Senate. That's right. Then we had a mob of insurrectionists incited by the president of the United States storm the Capitol building. All while we're hitting record-breaking COVID deaths, by the way, with a new, more virulent strain um, raging across America. So those are some things that happened. Yeah. um, First, let's talk about, I don't, what would you call, would you call it insurrectionist? Everybody seems to have settled on insurrectionist, the term for these people who stormed the Capitol. And there, I mean, look, there were people among them who were peaceful. There were people among them who were flat-out rioters. There were people among them who now were murderers, right? Yeah. So, but... Is that the term that you like? You like the term insurrectionist well, for them? I think it applies. And I have, as you know, resisted some of the more over-the-top hyperbole mm-hmm. um, around Trump and the coup attempts and all of this, um, you know, that's been going on. But in this case, like, clearly they thought they had a chance to overturn the results of the election. Mm-hmm, yeah. So I think it, you yeah, think I, think, I think it applies. Yeah. So I've been referring to it as a diet coup. And the reason I called a diet coup is not to downplay like how serious it was and how scary it was. It was a really just flat out incredibly scary situation. Um, I called a diet coup because my sense of it was in order for it to be like a coup coup, you almost need to have some members of the military at the top coordinating where there's actually a real chance of it working. Yeah. You know, this was like very bottom. It was like Trump giving a speech at a rally where Trump was like. Wouldn't it be, what we need to do is be really strong. We have to be really strong. Make sure you march to the Capitol, go to the Capitol. So like he was sort of coordinating it to some extent. But then in terms of the people on the ground, it was like, you know, somebody tweeted flabby suburbanites was one explanation I saw for some of them. The other one is like a guy, the guy in like the, the animal skins dude. with the body paint on who somehow got, did he get into the, the house or was it the Senate? I, I don't know. Either way, either way, <laughs> he's like, he got into the, I think it was the Senate. He was very prominent. Yeah. I mean, obviously he went viral for obvious reasons, but you had like these, it was a very, and this gets into a deeper conversation, Crystal, that I wanted to ask you about because I'm seeing now a split online between some people who are talking about this and bringing up like you know, economic issues and how, hey, this is what happens when you have a country that's been left behind for so long and what do you expect? But then other people are saying, hey, man, you look at who was actually at this thing and there's a number of people who were CEOs of companies. Somebody, there's this Texas woman who flew a private jet there and then she partook in like this diet coup slash insurrection, whatever you want to call it. Right. So like, what's the more pervasive narrative and what makes the most sense to you? So- couple things to backtrack for a moment on your diet coup Mm -hmm. point like this was always the most obvious threat and danger from trump Mm -hmm. like you knew if you've been watching and paying attention to how he operates you knew he wasn't gonna have his shit together to like yes no planning the military and have a real plan in place to actually stay in the presidency right that was never the danger but the intent is there the intent is the intent is there he's as authoritarian as it gets if he (laughs) could do it he 100 percent would like that but he's also completely lazy yes he's a total coward he's not gonna storm the fucking barricades he's also dumb he's He's, also just very stupid he's just gonna you know and he's he's lazy all of those things this was always the danger that he would lie to his people right whip them up into a total frenzy and then fuck see what happens and, the, and they're and that true is exactly believers what happened true believers i mean that's the thing is like 
these people see themselves as noble patriots who are just standing for what's good and right. And ta- I mean, they you can say whatever you want about how delusional that is. And it is delusional. Incredibly delusional. But yeah. they really, truly, ultimately believe that. And so to your other point about, like, who are these people? What's their motivations? What's going on there? First of all, I think... You know, immediately you have to place blame where it most proximately belongs with it, which is with the president of the United States. And listen, with Newsmax, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Newsmax, Newsmax One America News, all yes. these fucking people who lit the match. Yes. And they didn't stop. They were they nonstop with the same narrative, stolen, rigged, fraudulent, this and that. And they got these people worked up. Yes. Hundred percent, and knew what they were doing. Yes, like uh-huh. Josh Hawley knows that the election wasn't 100% stolen, but he, he knows it's not stolen. He thought this was good for fundraising. Mm-hmm. He thought it was good for his own political ambitions, and so he was happy to pour fuel on the fire. Now, to the other part, like if you just take a step back from from these protesters, from the riots over the summer, the protests over the summer, like if you just zoom out and look at this country. You have numbers that any outside observer would be like, this isn't going to end well. It's a tinderbox. The whole country is a tinderbox. You've got a cable news ecosystem that profits off of turning people against each other, like, at their throats as the enemy, right? Cold War is over. War on terror doesn't pack quite as much punch. And this is the Matt Taibbi thesis. Hey, Hey, Dink. Yep. Mm -hmm. So we're going to make each other, our fellow citizens, are going to be the threat and the adversary, the existential threat to you, to your family, to your way of life. So you got that. You have massive skyrocketing, worse than Gilded Age inequality, Mm -hmm. which has, of course, only gotten worse during the pandemic. You have people cut off from their social networks. You have them losing their jobs, desperate, hungry, suicide, depression, anxiety, addiction, all of these things off the charts. And you're like, this is going to go fine. This is going to be fine. You know, uh, to me, the thing that I can't get over is that, and you've made this point, I've seen others make this point as well. It's not like these are rebels with a clear cause. You know, it's not like there were... There was an insurrection because everybody needs health care and we don't have health care. You know, it's not like there's higher wages. We need higher wages. We've got to end these wars. We're, you know, fighting all these places. It was very, like, so sycophantic and authoritarian that, like, these people really are revolutionaries for Donald Trump. And I was joking on Twitter and I said... Like, imagine waging a revolution for more corporate tax cuts and Wall Street deregulation. (laughs) Because effectively, that's what they're doing. They're waging, trying to wage a revolution for more corporate tax cuts and deregulation. And I think the reason why I'm seeing, like, such vicious disagreement online over what just happened is because I think every narrative has a grain of truth in it. So, like, I think the narrative of, like like you said, the country's a tinderbox. There's such extreme income and wealth inequality. People know the government has left them behind. So there's something like this is going to happen. That's true. But then it also is true, like the ideological argument that this is the fault of Donald Trump, Newsmax, One America News Network. And when you have really rich CEOs attending this diet coup attempt, for them, it's not a matter of like economic anxiety or whatever. For them, it's a matter of like, I have been brainwashed into thinking that Donald Trump is the savior of everything. And if you oppose Donald Trump, you're wrong and you're the enemy. So I think that's why it's so it's it's so hard and there's so much fighting online over this is because every narrative has a grain of truth. A point that a million people have made, which is totally true, is that if it was Black Lives Matter or if it was some group of Muslims, 
Of course they would have. Are you kidding me? They wouldn't have. They wouldn't have gotten on the property of the Capitol. They would have been not even out on, on the road. But since it was and listen, some of the cops were in on it. We saw that. But then beyond that, some of the cops are now dead because they weren't in on it. And they got caught up in this whole 56 thing. 56 injured in terms of 56 officers. injured. I didn't know it was that 56 many. 56 injured officers, one dead, bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher and another one on life support is my understanding of the current situation. But I want to say um, we interviewed on Rising Ken Klippenstein um, this week. And he said, you shouldn't think of it so much as like they were, you know, welcoming them in. And granted, we saw pictures of selfies. We saw the video that's kind of in dispute of them, like opening the gates. Mm -hmm. But he said, it's more that people have their like biases and they brought them to work. And so they allowed their own ideological blind spot to prevent them for from preparing for this eventuality. Like, this was obvious to anyone who was just looking at the facts that this was a possibility. I mean, mm -hmm. not a guarantee, not that you know for sure, but people are openly on social media like, I'm going to storm the Capitol. And then the president's like, we're going to march to the Capitol. How the hell are you not prepared for that? that well, that's and it's a complete, it's because a lot of law enforcement is more ideologically aligned with the right. president mm -hmm. and right wing and sometimes far right wing. And mm -hmm. so they see a bunch of what they see as patriots, patriots coming yeah. in town. And they're like, there's no problem here. This is going to be fine. Well, it's like it's like that tweet that went massively viral, which is like we spend seven hundred fifty billion dollars annually on defense. And the government was toppled in 20 minutes from the Duck Dynasty guys, and, right. you know. And so and what was the other part of it? I don't remember the other part of it. But it, was like, it was like Chewbacca. Right. Yeah. The, the Chewbacca guy in a Chewbacca bikini. bikini. <laughs> like, that's exactly what happened. But anyway, so there's a million things we could say about this. I do want to give everybody a little bit of a tease as to what they have to look forward to. We have Bhaskar Sankar coming yeah, on this week. Bhaskar is uh, he's the founder and founder, editor, and publisher of Jacobin. He's former vice chair of the Democratic Socialists of America. He's the author of the Socialist Manifesto. Um, and he's written for a bunch of publications like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, and the Nation. And uh, so we're going to talk to him about this and probably a million other things and get his thoughts on all this. And I'm really excited uh, to have Bhaskar on because in my opinion, He's somebody who's greatly undervalued and underrated for what he brings to the table. He's he's really is an ideological force. And every time I've read something of his or listened to him speak, it's always really interesting and really well thought out. He is one of the there are many, obviously, contributors, but he is one of the true um founders of the current left. I mean, when he when they started Jacobin and, and Jacobin's very been very influential for me in terms of my thinking. And I've said before, like started reading and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm allowed to think these things. Yeah. Like people actually think this and they say it and it's okay and you're allowed to do this. So he has been really instrumental in just creating the spa space in America for a left even to exist. So I'm really interested to hear his thoughts on that. But it's a perfect time to have him because he's such a thoughtful guy. He's such a deeply intellectual guy. I'm dying to hear what his thoughts are on this week on the riots at the Capitol, on the results in Georgia, on what, you know, the left is going to look like under a Biden administration, the path for there's a million directions I want to go in with him. And um, with that, introducing Bhaskar Sankara. All right, guys, so we have Bhaskar Sankara here with us. Um, as I said before, he's the founder, editor, and publisher of Jacobin. He's a former vice chair of the Democratic Socialists of America. He's the author of the book, The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. And uh, he's written for publications like Vice, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Guardian, and The Nation. Um, First of all, man, it's great to have you here. It's great to see you. Thanks, thanks. It's good to be back in D.C. I went to school here, so... Oh, did you? Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, the 
it's it's just as miserable. <laughs> it, it reminds me of like Still a terrible. slightly more prosperous like Eastern Europe or something like just big government buildings and vacant streets, um, at least during the pandemic. Well, yeah. I was going to say it's like particularly it's always soulless and sort mm-hmm. of terrible in that way. But particularly since COVID and since the protests over the summer and what happened this week, like everything's boarded up. The city's abandoned. It's it's particularly special right now. Yeah. So let's I, I want to start by asking you about, you know, what just happened this week. Uh, Crystal and I were talking about it a little bit before. Um what so what do you think should happen from now should because there's conversation about like should they invoke the 25th amendment to try to get trump out of their asap uh democrats are pushing really hard on impeachment right now um you know the other position is like everybody just buckle up and sort of ride it out for the next two weeks and see what happens do you have a a a take on that or no yeah i'm strongly in the ride it out position Mm -hmm. i think it'll only inflame things even more and also polarize the country, continue to polarize the country around the issue of Donald Trump. Mm. Um, mind you, I think that what happened on Capitol Hill was bad. I think it was a criminal act. Uh, I don't really like to use super hyperbolic language mm-hmm. um, about it. It's so not, you don't think it was a coup? I mean, it depends on the definition of coup. I don't want to get into semantic yeah. debate, but I think when I think of coup, I think of a organized movement with a program and a plan trying to seize not a building that represents power, but the actual levers of power. Yeah. And I don't think that was happening. Although they think they think that's what they were doing. I mean, they thought right, the intention was there. They thought yeah. that they were going to successfully or they had a chance of successfully overturning the results of the election. So where do you distinguish between like, well, they had the intent and their but their plan was really stupid. Right. And had no zero chance of working from one that was actually well organized and maybe you get the military involved. You could have some actual chance at achieving your coup ends. Well, there's a lot of zany, idiotic people in American politics, and some of them are actually dangerous, too. We saw that in the 90s when the far right in America was more dangerous and more violent in terms of the deaths it was leading to than, than even the one yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a whole host of, uh, of of stuff in the, the 90s of anti-government movement. That was provoked by by Bill Clinton. So if they were triggered this much by the election of Bill Clinton, you could imagine if we actually had a left-wing president in power who was actually trying to, to change things. Um, and I, But I think when the question of like the 25th Amendment, there's a bunch of legal questions about what Trump actually did. Um, f- from a glance, it seems to me like he's definitely, along with Republican leadership, morally responsible. Yeah. Does that rise to the level of legal responsibility? I'm not certain. I be. I am wary of the precedent of taking away somebody's democratic mandate. Yeah. Just yeah. because of hyperbolic language, so, and and I think that's a very dangerous um, uh, thing. And, and we just have to uh, be cautious because everything is going to blow back on the the left. You know. You know who who populates both the center left and the center right in this country, self-described center left mm. uh, in this country. It's a bunch of former CIA operatives, literally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these, are, these are the people. So you're saying whatever we do now, the precedent will inevitably be flipped back on the left. So if we invoke the 25th Amendment for what Trump did, then it's easy to imagine a situation where you have a president who might ideologically be in alignment with somebody like Bernie Sanders, and then like they'll look for any excuse whatsoever to invoke the 25th Amendment on him Right? Or her. Yeah, I definitely yeah, think that's... that's a possibility. Obviously, they're going to try to do it against the left anyway. So yeah, that's, mm-hmm. but, but to me, it's also a question of, of one, principles, uh, of course, of, of 
democratic mandates and, and so on, but also a question of what do we want politics in America to be about? What do we want mm. the conversation to be polarized around? Because there's a wing of liberalism that wants a conversation to be polarized against the fascists and the forces of order and decency. And for them, the leader of the forces of order and decency are Nancy Pelosi yeah. and Joe Biden. Right. And well, here's yeah. the here's the counter argument, um, because I hear that. But my fear has been because Trump's still out there, because he still commands the basically the entirety of the Republican Party, and because whether he's serious about running for president again in 2024 or not, he's certainly going to toy with it and play with it and be the opposition figure in the mm-hmm. Biden years, absent some change in the current dynamic. Well, they're just going to run the same playbook that they ran for the last four years and say, you can't, dis- you can't dissent. You can't say a word of critique against Pelosi or Schumer or Biden because the fascist is coming. He's just around the corner. And so you better shut up when we've got these like corrupt people coming in and irritating and OMB and nothing happening in terms of policy results. You got to shut up because the alternative is worse. So that's the landscape as I see it currently. Now, if look. Let's stipulate. I don't think the president is going to be removed by 25th Amendment or by impeachment. But let's play in the land of fantasy right now, because as we're taping this, Mitch McConnell hasn't actually said what he thinks about any of this. Let's play in the fantasy world where he gets impeached and actually convicted in the Senate. He can't run for president again. Takes that off the table. Mm -hmm. Then you have actually a Republican Party that, you know, some of whom Mike Pence is now being held up as like a hero and a savior and whatever. It makes it harder. They'll find a different boogeyman. Don't get me wrong. But it makes it harder to run that exact same playbook that we've seen over the last four years. That, that's a fair point. But I feel like you ha- if you're going to do something like impeachment, you have to do it on the merits of what happened. And the thing that I keep coming back to is he, Trump always leaves himself just enough wiggle room to get out of it, which is why, like, in that Twitter video he posted in the immediate aftermath as it was going on, he's like, we need to protect our law enforcement officers. We're 100% on the side of law enforcement. We're pro-law enforcement. And the election was totally stolen, and this is totally understandable as to why all of you would be out there. But also, don't do anything bad to our law enforcement officers. And then now he came out there and covered his butt again with, you know, the speech the next day. This is where I do view it differently, because I think on the merits, I think it warrants it. Like, I think that there is a clear I understand the slippery slope argument and like, my God, they're going to use this against the left. And, you know, whoever takes up the mantle of Bernie Sanders, et cetera. But I think you can draw a pretty clear line on inciting an insurrection, whether it had any prayer of, of succeeding, which, of course, it didn't or not. And creating this like, you know, violent riot in the Capitol, setting a murderous mob on your own vice president. I think there is a line that you can draw there. And, you know, as as a, a matter of fact, impeachment is not like. It doesn't rely on legal remedies, right? It is mm-hmm. the the remedy that we have within the Constitution to censure and remove a president who's abdicated his duty. I think it's more appropriate, frankly, than 25th Amendment, which was really meant for if he's completely incapacitated. Um, but the other thing that I think about is this is like elites never face any accountability for anything. And I think that that sets a horrible precedent. I mean, that's part of the damage and fallout that we're living through is like total lack of accountability for the Iraq war, where everybody just said, same as you said, like, nation needs to heal. And let's just put the George W. Bush era behind us. Let's just move forward. So there's zero accountability there, zero accountability for destroying the country's economy and the wealth of millions of people in this country, zero accountability for that. 
And I look at at this man who's been an absolute disaster in the presidency with this being his final like coup de grace and see that he's going to escape any accountability as well. And I put that in the same bucket. Well, I think you're right about impeachment. So so on the, the, the merits, they, they can impeach. Um, and even if it doesn't rise to the level of a legal Ron, Ron doing, you right. know, even if it doesn't rise to the level where he should be criminally prosecuted for what he he said, which, I, again, I think he's morally responsible. Um, you know, he probably wasn't directly coordinating with the people on the ground or telling them what to do. But or, he knew damn well um, what he was doing. Um, he's speaking I, out of both sides of his mouth the whole time. Yeah. That's what he does. That's Trump. Yes. But but then again, I think what do we want from politics in the next four years now? I think the specter of Trump isn't going to go away and the specter of Trumpism isn't going, going to go away. Neither is the attempts of Democrats to use that specter to try to get the left in line. Right. That's going to happen regardless. No matter what. I think we're on stronger terrain if as soon as possible we shift to the understanding that the enemy number one, starting in a couple weeks, is going to be Joe Biden. And the enemy number one is going to be the people standing in the way, uh, capitalist elites and and establishment figures on both sides of the aisle, standing in the way of a jobs program, a different policy on trade, Medicare for all. And I just feel like when it, it becomes about the left now taking responsibility to shore up this institutional order mm. that has always been against us. And And by the way, I definitely think that I'd rather have some sort of institutional order and some sort of flawed Republican democracy than no democracy at all. So right. I'm not saying the worse it gets, the better. But it really shifts things in a direction that isn't necessarily productive for us. And it continues polarization along this current culture war track. I want a different sort of polarization. Right. right. Yeah. So let me ask you, uh, to that point. Um, Crystal and I were discussing this a little bit before, but I see a debate now beginning to happen over, I guess, what we'll call an insurrection. Um, you have some people saying, hey, listen, what the hell do you expect to happen when the country's a tinderbox and you have such extreme income and wealth inequality? This is going to manifest in a bunch of different ways, whether it's, you know, BLM protests or this or, you know, whatever the initiating factors are, mm. something like this is going to happen. And there's a class element here where it's like most of the people who are out there live in poverty and degradation and have no hope and have sort of latched on to Donald Trump, the figure, to like fight back against the establishment, even though Trump is not doing that. You know, it's inarguable. He's not doing that, but they think mm -hmm. he is. Do you, are, do you view this through like a sort of a sympathetic lens to the people who are out there or the other side of the argument is, well, some of the people who are at these protests were mm -hmm. wealthy CEOs who were just drunk on Newsmax. And so if anything, there should just be condemnation and not necessarily some sort of understanding of what's going on. How do you view that? Well, I don't intrinsically have a lot of sympathy for the hardcore fringe of people who are who are out there and on the the front lines as opposed to a lot of working class people who did for various reasons vote for donald trump that, right. that i think should command sympathy but at some level i mean all the consequences from this like crystal was saying was going to flow to these 50 something people that were arrested um, obviously several people uh, among them who are dead and obviously trump is going to enjoy a nice retirement he's probably going to head to our neck of the woods to his golf course and and you know um you know in in in, in the new york area where we've known about him for a very long time as just this <laughs> tv guy next Boston? door <laughs> um you know in in a way he was uh yeah he was um amusing in a sick way for for a while mm. uh, i think um before we we started to 
uh, take him seriously. You know, there was there was a rap song in, in the the late aughts that was just called oh, Donald Trump. In the know? Republican <laughs> primary, he was amazing. Like yeah. I delighted in watching him. Like when he was shitting gut, on Bush. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh my God. gut Jeb. The Bush. towers came down underneath your brother's <laughs> presidency. The towers came down. He did not keep us safe. And well, a South or, Carolina GOP mm-hmm. audience cheered him. Which how, is, or how mm-hmm. about when Jeb Bush was like apologized to my wife, and he's like. No. I mean, <laughs> they were like, what? What is happening? It was great to watch until it wasn't, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly where we are. But I do think that that point is really interesting and important. Speak more to what you mean by you want the country to be polarized, but along different lines. Because, yeah, we've had, if you accept that this was basically like a white working class centered mm-hmm. riot, and you accept that the, the protest movement over the summer was a black and brown working class centered both of which I think Mm -hmm. could be contested, but let's allow for that, then you've had pitchforks coming from every aspect of the working class, just not in alignment, right? And that's the the way that elites keep power is by keeping people polarized along these lines that you're saying. So what does that look like today and how do you ultimately change that? Because I think that is the central challenge for the left. Well, I think right now you're seeing this extreme polarization in the U.S., but a polarization that on the na- international level wouldn't be considered that extreme. We mm. just have a political system that's uniquely unable to deal with it. We have a political system with all these choke points, with all these ways for a disciplined minority, which is what the Republican Party is right now, right. Um, to just prevent government from doing anything. That's and then, of course, that creates a feedback loop where people say, government cannot improve my life, therefore politics cannot improve my lives, and it, it fosters even greater cynicism and this kind of right-wing um, anti-establishment uh, feeling and sentiment. So you have Biden who basically says, my pitch is we could go back to the pre-polarized mm. time. And he recognizes the only way you could get things done in the existing U.S. political system and the existing balance of, of power in the U.S. is compromise and bipartisanship and whatever else. It's not just rhetoric for him. I think he does understand that. Then you have Trump who just seemed like he was going to be some sort of anti-establishment right-wing populist force for good or evil, but it turns out that he's really just a nihilistic egomaniac. Yeah, um, that's exactly mm-hmm. right. Um, and he would have actually won if he delivered, like, one thing. To yeah, literally people. one thing. <laughs> yeah, yes. anything. Because um, he even gained some black and, and, and yeah. brown working class He lost uh, the suburbs. That's why he lost. He lost the suburbs. And, and in the upper Midwest, he, he, he probably lost some... some um, white industrial workers and 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 other other um, other people uh, too, but in general, what you're seeing is the continued dealignment of the Democratic Party, and that's what I want us to focus on: the fact that Joe Biden got elected and the Democratic Party won an election, but it won an election by a narrow margin, not at the presidential level in terms of popular vote, but overall, um, if you count down ballot races, mm-hmm. it won. In, in a narrow way, in extraordinary circumstances. Right. And we've seen the continued um, cohesion of a highly educated suburban uh, base of the Democratic Party, wealthier than ever before, less rooted in a multiracial working class than ever before. So how do we fight against this, this dealignment? Well, I think it comes down to the acknowledgement that white workers, uh, Latino workers, black workers, uh, miscellaneous workers, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, you know, that we all want the same things. Um, if you actually look at polling, at least, of, of white workers, Latino workers, and, and, black, and black workers, um, the top five priorities 
are the same, just the order is is different. And that should be common sense because we're dealing with a lot of the same things and everybody wants to see themselves and their families taken care of, have some basic dignity and security and whatever else. And economic egalitarianism is popular. The $15 minimum wage and other progressive um, ballot proposals, uh, we can leave aside and kind of bracket the conversation about um, uh, California. I think that was a fairly unique circumstance. But on the whole, um, those proposals uh, polled ahead mm-hmm. of right. the Democratic ticket as a right. whole. Florida minimum wage mm-hmm. one passed, even though Trump won Florida. By a massive margin. Mm-hmm. Right. Yet now, I think we're doubling down on a hyper-partisan um, kind of culture war. And if you actually look, if you're an, a regular, not completely clued in American, and you look at even some members of the squad and their response, their messaging in the last few days, how do you distinguish them between them and Nancy Pelosi? Pelosi? Yeah, that's right. The way you distinguish them is that the squad is more radical in pursuit of the same exact right. goal. Yeah. Whereas I'm saying we need to foreground our real, and there are real, substantive political differences with the Democratic establishment. We need to be a different sort of um, poll to reconfigure American Mm. politics. That's interesting. I mean, one of the theories that I have that you can tell me is really stupid or tell me that I'm brilliant for is um, when you have a politics where basically over decades people have been told the government can't do anything, like the best thing the government can do is go away. The consequences of which, by the way, we have reaped in like by tenfold this year in institutions failing at every single level to respond to the disease itself, to respond economically, to distribute a vaccine in a timely and orderly fashion. Like in every way, the government failed as a result of this anti-politics over decades and decades. So when you've been telling people for years and years, like the government can't do anything for your life, the best thing you can hope is they just leave you alone. And you have a politics where the only things that you see the government doing are the things you really don't want them to do, giving more tax cuts to rich people, passing more terrible trade deals, getting us into new wars. That's the only area where you see actual movement and cooperation to get people to believe again that, like, no, actually, the government could be a force for good could do good things in your life and could improve your material well-being and provide you with a level of security. Now, there's no guarantees in life, and Mm -hmm. that doesn't guarantee happiness or anything else, but at least could provide a reasonable floor under you. How do you make people believe in that again? And then the other part of the theory is basically like, look, when politics collapses down to where people just give up on government actually doing anything for them, then all they have is the culture war. All they have is Mm -hmm. like, which side is showing me the least contempt and saying the things that I want to hear that feel good to me. And that's all that politics become about. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we are right now. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a chicken or the egg problem for us because we need to actually deliver victories for people to see the difference. I I do think the coronavirus uh, pandemic has made a difference in that people are across the spectrum demanding government action. So it used to be not very long ago that the economy was this this special cloistered off thing that was only talked about in purely apolitical terms and you have to let the economy work and Mm. adjust and pain was part of the economy and whatever, whatever else, um, in return for um, dealing with some extra unemployment and some extra suffering, we get more price stability. I mean, right. that was a trade-off that it seemed like there was almost consent among some working-class people um, for that, but not not anymore. The question is really, why isn't the government doing more? And I and I think that's that's a good starting point. I well, think that's true. You had everybody racing 
to be in favor of the $2,000 checks. Mm -hmm. That's what we just saw happen. It's one of, probably one of the major reasons mm -hmm. why Georgia went the way it went is because it's like, who could be louder and more in favor of the $2,000 checks? So you're right. There is definitely a shift there. So let me ask you, because the vision you were laying out previously is, is certain of, certainly a vision that I share, Crystal shares it, many on the left share it. But ultimately, that really was Bernie Sanders' argument, and that really was like the whole focus of his mm -hmm. campaign. So let me ask you, I certainly have my answers and my theories, mm -hmm. but why do you think Bernie Sanders' campaign failed? Well, I think he was going up against a um, well-established um, candidate who people knew, people trusted, and who had the highest perceptions of electability. Right, and yes. ultimately, the number one issue for Democratic voters was, can you be Trump? Right. And yeah. we're talking about a primary, too. So we're not talking about activating a coalition of semi-regular and non-voters to, to win. No, we're talking about mostly closed primaries and can you win these closed primaries? And Sanders still did a hell of a lot better than all these other establishment Democrats. And, um, on, and on the issue, sorry to interrupt mm -hmm. you, on the issues, when you ask people, who do you agree with more right. substantively, Bernie right. would always crush it, but then the question of electability would come in and Bernie simply didn't make the case enough that he was the electable one, the safe one versus Trump. And, you know, listen, you, I was behind the scenes, I was pulling my hair out because I, that was one of the main arguments I wanted him to make, especially mm -hmm. when it came down to just him and Biden. I wanted him to say, Joe Biden is Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. 2.0. Joe Biden cannot beat... Donald Trump, because we ran the experiment in 2016. Let's not run that experiment again. Now, listen, it, ultimately, that's not a true argument because Biden mm -hmm. ended up beating Trump. But that's the argument you have to make strategically COVID, at the time. Exactly. It was before COVID and things could be very different without COVID. Um, but yeah, we I talk mean, about Social Security and Medicare. It was it seemed like Sirota and a lot of other people trying to push that argument were being, you know, um, you know, criticized um, you yes, know, uh, they uh, were. Uh, for it. Um, and also it was like rolled out. Um, um, you know, in in haphazard, um, you know, uh, uh, ways when it when Bernie did kind of address it once or bring it up and then back away from it, he could have been much more clear, more clear, more consistent. But I would say there is a similarity between Biden and Bernie that's worth addressing. Both of them seem like they are progressive on all these cultural issues, and obviously we know Bernie is far more actually progressive. Mm -hmm. But they 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 speak a broadly progressive language. Mm -hmm which is popular in America because most working class people in America are broadly progressive on, on social issues, but they don't speak in alienating yes. academic language True. the way Elizabeth Warren, Julian Castro. Yeah. I mean, let like, me tell you about intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let me tell you about that. Um, yeah, and, and but but I, I feel like what happens after Biden? Does it? What's the future of the Democratic Party? Because Bernie's old. Um, Wait, what? He's old. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't I, notice. You're I didn't make Kyle cry right now. Yeah, I mean, he he's he's unfortunately old. He's unfortunately <laughs> old. I wish him. Uh, and also, we should let him retire at some point too, right? Yeah. Um, Not allowed. <laughs> but but and Biden's. Very old. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what what cocktail and miracle drugs. He's actually seemed quite sprightly these past six months. Amphetamines. Yeah. They got him on a bunch um, of stuff. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm waiting is. for the crash to happen. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I just drank a coffee before the, before the show. I don't normally don't have caffeine, so I know I'm going to have a massive crash in two, yes. three hours. Biden, just drink more so, coffee then. That's yeah. the way that works. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Biden's probably doing the same with whatever he's on. That's always um, been my logic. <laughs> Take more. Be fine. <laughs> but, but, the next generation of Democratic Party politicians are going to be these extreme 
um, these figures that are just in deep blue districts who are used to talking in this way to mobilize the activist base of people who campaign for them. Yeah. And uh, they're, they're donors. They're not used to even the style of politics. Like, again, we know that Biden was being disingenuous when he was doing it, but he was involved in Delaware politics, having to deal with organized labor since 1972. He was he, he is more at ease talking in a union hall. I know it's yes. become this kind of bear track, wine track cliche, but there is some truth uh, in that because embedded in that style, it's like a time capsule what the Democratic Party yeah. used to be like. Where even yeah. if you're a, a shithead Democrat like Biden is, you would have to um, interact and engage with regular people. And I think that's also the reason why he resonated with a lot of black working class older voters too. The it's same the sort of style. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the aesthetic of Joe Biden. It's how Joe Biden appears to be in terms of his actual voting record with mm-hmm. NAFTA and all that stuff. It's like, no, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you know, kind of a standard corporate Democrat in many ways. But the aesthetic is like, you know, and Trump has this too, in a sense. He's got the yeah. like, the faux straight shooter appeal, even though he's not a straight shooter. Well, and it is true. I mean, I thought the best moment at the DNC, the most compelling moment was the woman who was the elevator operator Mm -hmm. who spoke. And there had been that great moment between Mm -hmm. her and Joe Biden on his way up to his New York Times editorial board meeting when they endorsed, they half-dorsed Warren and (laughs) Klobuchar, right? So out of touch. But the woman in the elevator, like she had a a personal, emotional response to him and she had a great, like personal, emotional um, speech at at the DNC. And so I do think there's also, and this is a shared, I actually think there's a lot of similarities between Biden and Trump in a certain way. Um, You know, he was sneered at by the Obama people for not having the fancy degree Mm. and not speaking in that overly intellectual style Mm. that's so often prized within the Democratic Party. Obama himself, they looked down, they'd like, okay, here goes Joe and let him ramble on and then we'll really get to the meeting. That was all reported out how they all kind of looked down their nose at him. And there's a reason why Obama didn't jump right Mm -hmm. out and support him and actually pushed him out of the race back in 2016. So that sense that he has of like, a chip on my shoulder, and I'm going to show the fancy people that, like, I'm just as good as they are, I think is also a very relatable quality. It is, but unfortunately, he's not going to be the next FDR, which is what I think all of us want. We want him to go all in on that, but no, he's going to default to standard insider Washington politics. Um, So what I want to do, I also want to ask you a little bit about yourself, your politics, Jacobin. Tell me a little bit about where your politics came from, and tell me a little bit about how you started Jacobin. Well, I think my politics were organically, and I'm sure some critics would still say, like a basic social democratic liberal politics in the sense that, you know, my um, parents came to the U.S. uh, just a couple years before I was born, uh, about a year before I was born, and I was the youngest of five, the only one in my family born in the U.S. Um, I had a very different life trajectory than my older siblings, at least, you know, mm-hmm. they, um, you know, didn't graduate from from college. They didn't have a lot of the same opportunities. It was very obvious that the difference was the accident of birth, the accident of geography mm-hmm. that put me in the United States, that put me in an area with a good public school uh, district, that put me um, in an opportunity to succeed. And I think that that realization leads you to think about um, what are the preconditions for this welfare state. Yeah. You um, haven't considered that maybe you're just better than them. Maybe you just um, deserve it. Uh, you know what? That's only a little bit true. Only for one of them, actually. Uh, I think two of them are probably innately, all of them are nicer than me. Two of them are probably innately a little bit smarter than me, too. Um, <laughs> I um, really got an answer for that. But, no. <laughs> um, 
But, you know, so it, it became very obvious. And then the interest in Marxism and, and the, the far left was mostly at first like an academic intellectual interest. And then eventually I, I, I merged the two. So from Marxism, you get a sense of history. You understand that so much of change in this world, so much of history can be explained over the struggle over power and resources. Who gets to dictate decisions about the way a society is structured, about what the priorities are? You know, I'm, I'm glad that human beings got to the moon, but we made it a national priority to get to the moon. Right. Uh, we never made it a national priority to end joblessness um, mm. or to end homelessness or to give create a national health service. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you think about about these these elements, and it is sort of unlocking a lot of history and unlocking an understanding of the world. And I think those of us steep so much in politics underestimate to what extent like a materialist understanding of the world is very innate and natural but kind of becomes unschooled from us. Yeah, Especially again, the, the Georgia race, that mm-hmm. proves it. Now, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, the material conversation came back up, mm-hmm. the $2,000 checks, mm-hmm. and that became the defining thing of the race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You I mean, know? Warnock literally ran mm-hmm. ads that said, vote for me and you will get a $2,000 check. Mm-hmm. And, oh my God, mm-hmm. lo and behold, it worked. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like that straightforward honesty is what people, I think, really liked in, 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 in Bernie. But, and, but for me... Uh, this understanding that, you know, if you actually want reform and you want things to be better, it means not just advocating for better policy. It means figuring out who's standing in the way of that better policy and figuring out how do you politically defeat them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then understanding the arc of social democracy, realizing that even if we win temporary concessions, we're still going to have this class of people that ultimately, at the end of the day, have the lever of power in their control. They have the ability to withhold investment, the ability to say, well, we're just not going to, you know, create this new uh, factory or this new firm or or whatever whatever else. And this this capitalist class, you know, it's just language we don't really use in America. We think about the market, the market economy. We right. we didn't we don't even use the word capitalist economy because it's just taken for granted that this is just the way things will always yeah. um be. Talk to me about at the like the founding of Jacobin. What the like what the idea was? What did that look like? What did it feel like? Just take me through that. So I was actually in in DC at Nineteenth and 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 F. Um, you know, I was a undergraduate at George Washington University. I had a um, experience already on the left. You know, I was from age seventeen, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, um, their youth wing. I had great connections with a lot of, um, you know, wonderful organizers and thinkers, and I was really absorbing their information and, and every everything, like the experience of going to like little protests against, from, I guess, the big rallies against the war to little protests against, like, a plan privatization for, like, the, the health care plan for New York City workers, mm. you know? So for me, the moral conviction was there and I had just enough, I guess, experience to make it happen, but not enough to realize how much work a publication would be. I assumed this <laughs> was like a project for a couple of years. Yeah, I assumed it was a project for a couple of years. And then at no point did I ever decide, like sit down and decide, this is what I'm going to do for the next decade or for the rest of my life or whatever else. I just kind of spiraled um, um, into it. But the goals were two twofold. One was a goal internal to the left. Now, 10 years ago... 
the left had a lot of great things going for it, but it was very much stuck in that WTO protest, 1999 moment. Uh, there was a popular book in the early 2000s, Change the World Without Taking Power. And I think that defined a lot of the left. Mm. The uh, commitment still to resistance, but the lack of a belief that we had an agent of change. So people didn't often talk about the working class as an agent of change, but also that we had a goal, we had a mission beyond just kind of bearing witness. Yeah. So let me ask you, to that point, one of the things I've noticed is that there are these competing feelings on the left where, on the one hand, the left seems to want to be an edgy subculture and also, like, maintain that, like, outsider credibility in a way. But there's a problem because if you are an edgy subculture, you're by definition not the main mainstream and you're not getting positions of power. So... I've noticed that as a problem for a long time. And like like you just described how, you know, Marx was big in getting you involved in politics. Uh, for me, it was more Chomsky. But I guess my question is, do you ever feel that either if it's me talking about Chomsky mm -hmm. or you talking about Marx, or if you get too much into the theory angle of politics or you get too insular with the identity stuff, that that can basically be a barricade, a roadblock to ever having the left really break mm -hmm. out to be the mainstream of politics, where you speak the language of regular workers mm -hmm. and, you know, you gain their respect and their support in that way. Do you think we get too intellectual and too edgy and too much of a subculture? Well, the left-wing economist Joan Robinson used to say that we should have marks in our bones, not marks in our, you know, mouths. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And, I, and I think that, that you could explain any... Uh, idea any theory but as long as you do it in a in a way that seems to resonate right with people's lives and experiences and and seem relevant then it then it works and you know i think our goal is to be mainstream but to still be anti-establishment i think that's what people like about let's say a figure like bernie bernie was someone who had so much experience on the hill was could credibly say that he's a politician who knew people and knew to get things done, but he was still seen as an anti-establishment force. And I think that combination was useful. I also think it was strategic. Maybe it backfired, but he kept saying during the debates, my good friend Joe Biden. Mm. I think that was strategic. I think it was a reminder to people that he's uh, within a closed Democratic primary. He's normal. That, that he, yeah, that he knows these people, that he's not the left-wing version of Trump, that he's something different. So it's mm. a fine line to walk. I think Bernie was trying to navigate it. We'll have to do it in our own way. But also, I do think that at the moment, our goal is to create a mass opposition uh, movement, which again becomes tricky because we need to run um, in Democratic primaries. You know, I have 100 percent I'm on board with the idea. I knew you you were very early on board with that that idea. I think it's been very successful as a tactic. But now we have to navigate the fact that we're running and winning in closed primaries but we also want to create a polarization against a Democratic Party leadership that mm -hmm. is still broadly popular among working class um, people. Like my parents, for example, both voted for uh, Bernie. They supported mm -hmm. Bernie this time. Their number two was Biden. They kind of like Gamma Harris. They're pretty much like okay with most Democrats. They were like, we'll pick a random Democrat and be like, Amy Klobuchar, I don't like her. And, you know, 
by for be some Mayor random Pete on the don't like list. Yeah, you know, <laughs> gotta be Mayor for Pete. some some random reason. Like, oh, that guy was stammering. <laughs> like, <laughs> what is he stammering right, about? Yeah. Um, but I think this this that doesn't exist on Twitter, right? That doesn't exist in the more highly um, polarized mm-hmm. and factionalized parts of American um, politics, right? Uh, and- and what are the barriers to um, having that type of polarization against the Democratic Party elite from the people who are elected in these closed primaries once they go to Washington? Like, I mean, obviously, the squad is a perfect example here where it seems like when AOC came in and she's protesting outside the speaker's office and she's pushing for the Green New Deal and actually makes some progress there. And now there seems to be a different approach within the body. Like, what are the what are the barriers to actualizing that type of politics? Well, at some level, it might be tactical. Like in AOC's case, she might say, I could actually get more things done, have more leverage, have more of a platform if I have positions on certain committees. It is tactical. And the Democratic leadership. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But I'm saying that it doesn't flow from a... A compromising a principle. Yeah. No, no, nobody, by the way, yeah. yeah, nobody, by the way, wakes up. It's very rare for someone to wake up and be like, I'm going to sell out. Yeah, today. exactly. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? um, though, I mean, if someone wants to write me a check, <laughs> I, we, we could have that conversation. <laughs> you know, but, um, but, you know, it, it, it happens over time and it happens because people think they're, they're pursuing their own politics. People think the world is changing um, and their support base is changing, but they're being constant and consistent generally. Yeah. Um, now, I think that so that's one barrier, sure. like the fact that they actually can confer certain benefits and you could use this benefits to help your constituents and to help the country as a, as a whole in your in your in your mind, at least. So on an individual decision making basis, it may be the rational choice, but it leads you in a different direction than you would go otherwise, is what you're saying, because you look at this and you're like, OK, I could either, you know, create the scene and withhold my vote for speaker. And ultimately, she's going to be speaker anyway. And we're just going to have this vote on Medicare for all was, of course, the big debate that was happening. And it's not going to pass anyway. Whereas uh, the other path, I can actually see the tangible benefits I would get right now. So it may be a rational decision on that individual basis, Mm -hmm. even if long term it leads you to being kind of just another member of Congress. So it's rational within the prism of actually existing politics. But mm. the whole point of what we're trying to do Correct. is that we could change what that prism gotcha. is. Yep. That we can muster some sort of force. That we can, like, like for example, on the actual merits of the objection to, like, force the vote or whatever else, like, I understood all the objections. I was somewhat skeptical of the tactic. But I generally think we need tactics like that. We generally need to uh, mm-hmm. to upend the cart. It's the and only just, way. It's it was the only the way. response from institutional actors on the left and other people seemed to be o- overly defensive. Like I don't, I don't feel like it's my job to necessarily defend organizations that have a lot of dues-paying members or defend, um, you know, fairly powerful members of of of, of, con- uh, of Congress um, or, or whatever else um, because. You know, uh, I I don't really see like disproportionately working class people getting angry about an issue as as a problem. If anything, we just need to channel that 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 energy and and channel that spirit into a a different sort of um, uh, tactic, maybe. But but we need we need to use it because the existing status quo. We're not on the pathway to winning what we want to win. We're not like two years into a five year. Um, um, process. I'm a huge NBA fan, you know, Um, and I feel like uh, a lot of people on the left think that we're like 
like peaking and we're going to win the championship in a few years or something like that. Right, I'm but really, that... we're just the Knicks and we're... No, no, we're not even lost. the Knicks. We're like the Utah Jazz. We're even worse. We're in, we're in purgatory. Even we're I right. get that yeah. reference. We're, we're, in the middle, we're in the middle of the standings. We're, we have no pathway to win a championship. Yeah. But we're also just not god-awful anymore. So, yeah. you know... And, you're just, and I think there's a lot of rationalizing and... I can't speak. Rationalizing and lying... People lie to themselves mm-hmm. about where we are. So to your point, like... I think the, ultimately the conversation becomes reform versus revolution, and there are plenty of people who are just like, revolution, I'm going to press the revolution button right now. But in my, my objection to that was always like, there is no point A to point B, there is no like, actually, here's how this is successful. It's just, it's almost like throwing your hands up and saying, ah, screw it all, and I want to have like a magic solution that I could just jump to. So I've always said, and this was the idea behind Justice Democrats, what if we did what is effectively the last train stop on reform railway before we get to revolution? So in other words, you use the institutions that are there, but you really work together with people who are of like mind and you throw a wrench in that motherfucker, you know? And so the next idea uh, beyond force the vote, which, you know, people tried like hell to get him to do this and they didn't step up to the plate. Okay, well then the next idea would be, and I probably shouldn't say this this early because I wanted to work on it behind the scenes, but too bad, I'm going to say it now because I'm a loudmouth anyway. What if the progressives, they voted as a block, say a dozen of them or so, the Justice Democrats, maybe some people from the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and they said, we're going to block every single bill that comes up because we have the power to do it unless Joe Biden signs five executive orders. The five executive orders we're going to pick him to sign are going to be the most progressive ideas in the unity commission that he agreed to. So it could be some student loan debt relief or whatever. So that's reform. It's not revolution. It's reform. Nobody's storming the Capitol with guns on the left like that, right? But it also is really, really hardball, and it draws a line, and it's the haves and the have-nots, and it says... The elites are against mm-hmm. you, and it's not just the Republican elites. It's also the Democratic mm-hmm. elites, and I'm going to shine a light on that, and I'm going to fight for you. And I think I'm, I'm mm-hmm. hopeful that you can get Joe Biden to sign at least two of those executive orders if you play that kind of hardball. But again, that requires believing in reform over revolution, but also the strongest version of reform, which is like a hostile mm-hmm. takeover of the system on behalf of workers. Yeah, and a willingness for the media and to hate every you. one of your mm-hmm. colleagues to, hate you. to absolutely despise you. I think that's a great idea and a great tactic. The problem is we don't have a disciplined caucus. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and, and we're trying to get them to be disciplined, but they but, don't listen. But, but here's here's where I will play devil's advocate. I, I've been generally on the, like, on in the discourse wars the last couple of weeks. I generally have been on the force the vote um, side of things, in, in, in part because I think some of the response to it was just, like... Insane. Or condescending, too, right. which is worse. Worse than... Right. Worse than in, in, insane, because... Um, um, yeah, it was a very narrow, like, we have it covered, we have it taken trust care us. of, whatever it was, Trust us, we've got this. But, yeah. but, but the institution building and the creation of mass membership organizations, uh, tying in organized labor, which is a long process that obviously more of the left needs to be engaged in, yeah. this is how you create the, the, the leverage um, to actually discipline members of, of, of Congress. I don't think you could just do it from um, the bully pulpit. Um, of of uh, media platforms, and it's a difficult thing. I think we kind of need both. Obviously, they're not For mutually sure. mutually exclusive. But I think what we need to pursue is a strategy that remembers that we're trying to create many different kind of fissures in American politics. That we want to be distinct 
from the mainstream of the Democratic Party, while at the same time recognizing and fighting the threat being posed from the right wing of the American uh, political spectrum. So maybe on certain issues, we're in coalition with the liberals because we don't want to see American democracy completely eroded. Right. Right. But on other issues, we want to actually say there's a huge difference between Nancy Pelosi and and little things like the freezer thing or whatever else that people want to just pretend was just like parlor or whatever else. Like, obviously, it is that. But it's also the fact that it just shows how out of touch these people are. They don't even even when they're trying to be nice and they're trying to give you a glimpse inside of their their families and their homes, they're trying to humanize themselves. They just reveal how far from normal they are. Right. And, and it's not even her fault. It's just if I had that much money and I had that, that's a great bridge. <laughs> if I had that, like, you that know, ice cream looked delicious. Yeah. Yeah. But it also was like, you know, ridiculously expensive. And we actually we covered that on Rise. You probably covered it. It too. was during a crash, like as the economy was imploding and everybody was losing right. their jobs and COVID perfect... was destroying. And she's on a late night talk show laughing as she's eating like somebody called it designer ice cream. Designer. Ice- <laughs> I mean, it was like a perfect let them eat cake moment. And by the way, it turned out the ice cream maker is like a big Democratic donor, too. Which oh, just, my like, God. That's a cherry on top. But yeah. that was one of those where. You know, we we thought it was interesting, and it was before it really blown up, and so we did the video on it, not really thinking that much of it, and it was one that just went crazy. It was symbolic, yeah, symbolic. because it touched mm-hmm. that nerve mm-hmm. in a way that, yeah, it's super accessible, and maybe it seems a little mm-hmm. silly, but it can be the opening for more of a conversation. I mean, I do want to ask you, going back to the election results of this year and what's been much discussed and I think is actually really, you know, interesting and potentially important to get to the root of is you did have after four years of media and mainstream Democrats telling you every day, like, you can't vote for Donald Trump or you're racist and he's Mm -hmm. racist. And like, that was the most consistent messaging coming out of the Democratic Party. And then you have him increase his share Mm -hmm of the minority vote, which actually was enough of a shift that you (laughs) helped to de-racialize the American electorate, which had been increasingly splitting along racial lines. Like, what do you think is behind that? Because obviously Mm -hmm. we know how he's actually governed. He governed exactly the way that like a George W. Bush would govern in terms of economic policy by and large. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the material policies were, you know, radically different than what came before. So how do you explain that? So I have a good soundbite answer, but I'm going to try to actually think about this <laughs> just because this is like home home turf. So I won't give yeah. you my soundbite answer. But I think in part, it's a return to pre-2008 norms where the Democrats are winning minority um, uh, voters. But um, especially with Latino voters, it's not so radically skewed mm-hmm. as it as it became. Um, in the dynamics of the next few um, uh, races. I think part of it is some of the advantages of incumbency. So Donald Trump, you know, when you got your your, your, uh, stimulus check, like um, I, I actually got a physical check because... You know, I guess I didn't put in my like account number and routing mm-hmm. when I did my taxes the year before. You know, you get a letter from Donald Trump being like, "Enjoy this, <laughs> enjoy Here's this money." Um, so you and, voted for him because of that, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I wrote in Jill Stein. Decided <laughs> <laughs> so to make it free in a row. Third time's a charm. So, um, you know, so like I, I think I think that. That there's there's all these factors, but what is the, probably the most glaring thing is that turnout was up across the board, but the place where it was up the least by far was in working class black areas. Mm. So that's a more important figure because I think that's like people are just going to stay home. They're not necessarily going 
going to shift. By the way, mm. that's um, exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Granted, but, I was in New York, so it didn't really matter. But yeah, I, was, I stayed home. But um, I, I, I like I like going to vote. You know, and I do. I, like, I love it, but I, I, like, I, couldn't, you know, I couldn't do it, yeah. man. It was the Iraq War. The Iraq War was one of the things that brought me into politics. Mm-hmm. And you want me to? You're pretending like this guy who was responsible for the Iraq War. Oh, I was just going to say vote for Howie in New York. You know, yeah, Syracuse, I mean, I could have. New York Zone. Uh, I could have, but um, I already voted for Jill Stein previously. It's like Bosker's judging you right now. Yeah, he saying. can judge no, me all he wants. But I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, no, no, but I completely get the get the sentiment. It was a hard one. I guess the the argument to vote for Biden was just simply Less running evil, up yeah. running up the the vote. I, I mean, in in a safe state, it was oh, like run up state. the popular vote totals just because he's going to pull stunts like he tried mm-hmm. to, right? Um, yeah, mm-hmm. um, you know, pull. Yeah. Recently. To be clear, yeah. I think Biden is the lesser evil. Mm-hmm. I just I live in New York and it didn't matter. So yeah, I'm like, yeah. I, I would have voted guy. for Biden uh, in a in a swing state, uh, very begrudgingly um, as well. But you know, so. I do think that this this decline in turnout yeah. in 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 black areas not not absolute decline but relative um, um, a drop in in decline is just a sign of a lack of enthusiasm, and the Democrats thought that by catering a uh, to just the language of racial justice, foregrounding that they would automatically win black voters, but simply people aren't primarily voting on those issues, even right. though they care about it, even though those issues are are important. They're voting on a lot of bread and butter issues, and they're broadly economically egalitarian. Yep. So if we know that that's the recipe to turning out uh, working class voters, why won't the Democrats do it even if they're being cynical? Well, because now they're managing to win elections with a base in the suburbs. Yes, that's right. And the real problem here is that you're creating a scenario where maybe the Democrats continue to hold the presidency, but because of how undemocratic uh, America is, this is a recipe for down-ballot disaster. So geographic concentration is a really bad thing if your base is disproportionately in cities and in immediate um, suburbs. Right. Uh, And if the Democrats are at this disadvantage to begin with, based on where their voters are, and in order to actually get anything done, you need 60 senators. So you need a super, super majority to get a super majority to, to govern if right. you're the, the Democrats. It seems to me that this is absolutely disastrous. And if Biden's the best mainstream um, center-right Democrat, or however, however you want to describe him, at talking to working class people because of his history, because of his rhetoric, like we were discussing before, what's going to happen next? Is Elizabeth Warren going to give it a go in 2024, yeah. 2020? Well, Harris, I was going to say, right? I'm curious what's going to happen with Kamala, because d- d- does she take away a lesson from Biden winning of like, hey, maybe I lean into certain issues and stay away from other issues? Or is it or is it just you go right back to what they were doing previously, which granted her dropping out before Iowa? You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know that she like you were talking about. Joe came up in like a different politics before this era. Where he, you had to, as a Democratic candidate, be in the union hall and be comfortable in the union hall. And so he knew how to do that. I don't know that that's something you can just, like, put on, like, a coat and adopt. Right, because yeah. you, even if your, like, political cynical calculation is that that would be the but thing to do. But who's the Democrat that can do it? Like, I, maybe Sherrod Brown is the one of the few people yeah. that I can think of. Just no has... national profile yet, though. It's very low, mm-hmm. you know? But, like, my point is, what if Kamala was giving speeches where at the very least she talks about, hey, we need to raise taxes on corporations and the wealthy. You know what I mean? Like, that makes anybody more likable mm-hmm. if you start saying stuff like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's just, um, I'm color me skeptical. 
That, well, I mean, I'm skeptical know? too. I'm just trying to paint the best case <laughs> right. scenario type picture. Incumbents, incumbents tend to win re-election right, in yes. normal times. If Harris is running as essentially Biden's incumbent, maybe that gives her an advantage to eke out a victory in 2024. And maybe that gives her an advantage in 2028. And maybe that buys us time. Because because I used to be, I've always been, you know, yeah, I'm fine with the lesser evil in power. I'm not going to campaign for for a bad Democrat. I'm not going to canvas. I don't think organizational resources should be spent. But yeah, I was very upset when Trump won in 2016, right, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, rightfully. I now am even more extreme in that position, not because Donald Trump ended up, um, though I guess there's still a couple of weeks, you know, using nuclear weapons or, or anything. Yeah, but don't more, say that yet. <laughs> more insane, you know, I Iran. think predictions, um, war with Iran or, or whatever else. But because liberalism has become even more insane as conservatism, mm. conservatives have become more and more insane. And the uh, liberals and conservatives are whipping themselves up in these like dueling uh, culture culture wars Mm -hmm. and these dueling kind of panics. And then they kind of just subside and no one goes back and says, hey, that thing we said two weeks ago was a little bit nutty. Sorry about that. It just kind of continues on and on. And obviously, all things being equal, I generally agree with, if not the way they're expressing it, with some of the moral sentiments behind what liberals are are, are saying, or at least right. some of the stuff they're they're saying, whereas I find a lot of the stuff being said by the right to be um, ab- abhorrent. But right. to me, it's become largely a political. And if this conversation becomes about norms and values, then mm. class doesn't enter into the equation right. at all. If it comes about fascism and those who would oppose fascism, then it completely gets disconnected from any of these underlying um, questions. And the irony is Joe Biden, as as a centrist president, is only going to fuel a lot more of this energy on the right anyway. That's exactly right. Well, Joe Scarborough says the real problem this week is that we all didn't say fascism enough because I'm sure that would have magically solved everything. Um, Bosco, you mentioned the 2024 race. I mean, do you see that as another potential opening for the left? Or do you think, you know, is there another Bernie Sanders style movement and candidate on the horizon? Or you seem to sort of allude to the idea that, listen, maybe if Kamala wins two terms, that's not the worst thing in the world because that gives us some time to build. What's your view there? Well, I definitely do not want I want a strong challenge to an establishment Democrat in 2024. I think it just will be extremely uh, difficult. Probably the last insurgency that was vaguely left of center, at least in the context of American politics, was like Ted Kennedy's um, to to Carter's yeah. insurgency, supported by Michael Harrington and and other uh, left wingers at the at the time. Um, I do think though that this cycle of of struggle that we've had really since Occupy. Um, that began with Occupy, began with the movement in in Spain, began with the Arab Spring, continued on through electoral manifestations all across um, Europe, um, in um, Latin America, in uh, Corbyn and Sanders. Is basically at an end. Mm. I don't want it to be at the end. Oh, that's but, interesting. You think? But I, I think the over. cycle is hmm. is coming to an end or over. It's a very, it's you know it's not like a book. We can't we can't know whether we're in the beginning, middle, or end or something. But it seems to me that we need something to jumpstart. Right, a new cycle of struggle, and mm. I don't know what that is. 
I think we should all keep an open mind and be tactically uh, flexible and try new ideas. That's why, again... Oscar, I'm not going to run for senator in New York. I'm not primarying Schumer. I know off camera you said that's the answer, but I'm busy. I got these things um, going on. To be perfectly honest, I think we need... Um, more galvanizing long shot um, uh, runs. We'll keep you in our back pocket for 2036. This guy, he though. won't get off this. Uh, <laughs> what am I going to do? I know but, you all want me to run, but I'm busy. You, you joke, but people really do want you um, to do that. <laughs> Imagine me making fun of Chuck Schumer on the campaign trail, doing my impression Here. of him. <laughs> Political, winner. <laughs> Political winner. Political um, winner. But yeah, so we. Uh, we need something to jumpstart the struggle. But I think politics is going to be. We can't really predict what politics is going to be like in the lead up to, um, to, yeah. I guess, 2023 when, when uh, the primaries would, would begin. Um, I think, though, the left always needs a representative in these races. Why don't we run a, a labor figure? Why don't mm. we run right. a, a left-wing labor figure as essentially a protest candidate, but someone yeah. who could win a couple states, get 20% of the, the primary, and just run on a single issue? Run, on, run on labor issues, run on economic inequality, and just repeat some shit over and over again. Maybe that'll be useful. Is there hope for like taking somebody like AOC or taking somebody like Andrew Yang where, you know, I have critiques of them. I think there are shortcomings there. But is there hope to like take one of them and sort of mold them into the exact kind of labor candidate that we're looking for? Or is it like, you know, they are who they are and we need somebody new? Well, I think AOC is great for what she is. And I think her, what she's done well is foreground a few issues like Green New Deal mm-hmm. and bring it into the public discussion, foreground it as an issue in Congress where people have to say yes or no to it and use our bully pulpit in Congress quite effectively. And she's also, she's capable of speaking in a really populist um, idiom at times. She, yeah. she, her, her, her highlight, like I'm, again, can I do another bad basketball analogy? Please. I'm trying to think. <laughs> Actually, um, um, the, the, very early promise of like Andrew Wiggins, mm-hmm. and yeah. let's just assume supposed to be that, the next Kobe or Jordan, um, and 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 still could have been mm-hmm. if we were in a time machine. So I think I think there's a potential there for her to really, um, like at certain moments she shows flashes of something just like in, in, incredible. Um, now is she suited to be a national politician? Like I don't I don't know. I think there's a lot unique about about Bernie. Uh, I think it helped him early on in his political development that even though he had this kind of somewhat kooky left-wing background that he was in a state that was not by any means a, a deep blue state vermont was quite conservative when he was coming up in the 80s yeah i think the experience of local government that they experienced that 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 environment in vermont in the 70s and 80s uh led him to develop a certain different type of, of politics um he was like you know Frozen in time in the best way. He was the legacy of a left that could directly draw its lineage to like Debs and Thomas and right. and, and all mm-hmm. these other um, struggles. Whereas I think AOC reflects a lot of the strengths and weaknesses of the contemporary um, left. Right. Mm. Um, so There's some insularity there that I think is a problem. There's You're too insular, too in your own bubble. And that, you know, you I, I always try to talk, and I fail at this from time to time, of course, but I always feel like, 
when you're crafting arguments, when you're talking about these things, you want to do it as if you know your biggest enemy is listening and they want to come after you. So you craft it in a way where you can even appeal to those who don't agree with you much. And I don't see a lot of the national left-wing figures trying to do that. If anything, they lean into the opposite approach. Because of the incentive structure. Right. They have their activist base that turns out in these overall fairly low turnout um, a primaries, not relative to other primaries, but relative to just like a democracy around the world, mm-hmm. um, where a handful uh, of dedicated activists and small dollar donors can give you such a huge advantage, you know, that's really your your base, right? So if your constituents are a little bit more skeptical on a particular issue, it doesn't really matter that much because they're going to vote for you in the general anyway. And you're broadly on the same page enough with them that they're not going to defect. Yeah. So you're really catering to your base. Same thing with all these like insane um, uh, uh, Republicans. Like they are responding. I should say they're not insane. They're responding to pressure from within their party. Right. The QAnon types who just got elected. Yeah. You you Mm -hmm. can't denounce QAnon. I don't think there's not a single Republican. There's probably one. That's it. Who actually gives any credence to this QAnon stuff. But you just can't say it. It's like, you know, Trump was uh, asked about it in one of the um, one of the, like town hall things, and he yeah. was like, you know, I hear they're really against pedophilia, and I don't like pedophilia, yeah. so I think that's actually a very good thing. I think pedophilia <laughs> kind of is a, wrong. It's very clever. <laughs> I, well, that's classic Trump there. Yeah, a very but, good I mean, pivot. <laughs> how do you like? Because I think the the other incentive structure we have to talk about is like, and Kyle and I were talking about this in a, little, a little bit in the intro. Is like, you know, the Matt Taibbi hypothesis that the media basically profits off of turning us against each other and making it so that, like, you know, these people on the Q people are the true enemy and not like the elites, but like the people who really believe the stuff who Mm -hmm. were storming the Capitol yesterday. And if you're watching Fox News, like people on the left and the woke college students are destroying the country or whatever the narrative is there. And so you create this existential politics that essentially makes solidarity impossible. Well, I think in practice, solidarity is possible. And the the, the ballot measure, there's an untold story in American politics. The there's a story measures, of building yeah. the, the ballot measures. So true. In yeah. November, there's a story of growing consensus around the need for change on health care. Mm-hmm. Growing consensus on the stimulus checks. and $2,000 yeah. checks. 80% so th- issue. There is bubbling beneath the surface a majoritarian, yes. economically egalitarian politics. And even, by the way, on even a somewhat polarizing issue like Black Lives Matter, actually does have a lot of broad-based support. Mm-hmm. So when we distill it to some of the left, and I'll include Jacobin and myself in this, some of the demands around defund the police, whatever else, are, are, are quite um, unpopular. I think there's a lot of merits to them, but they are they are where they are. They are uh, at the moment. Um, um, Abolish ICE too, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, mm-hmm. so, yeah, which I think 100% is a is a good idea. It was created by the Bush administration. It's abomination, whatever, whatever else. But often the right focuses on those demands and the pollings around it and says, okay, the left's agenda is unpopular. That's everything, yeah. But if you consider the fact there was mass demonstrations, and I'm sure inconvenienced some people who were like, you know, driving into cities and whatever else, um, and the American public, by a large margin, was in favor of it, Mm -hmm. broadly supportive of it. They're in favor of the idea that one shouldn't suffer oppression based on the color of their skin. They're in favor of all these other things that that if you were to tell us in the 60s with that level of polarization and, and the low support for the, the civil rights movement, which was quite controversial throughout throughout most of the 60s, we'd be amazed at the progress that was, that was made. Mm. I think Americans are committed to a lot of very good things. 
I think they're broadly progressive. I think we need to take all these sentiments and package it together into a politics. So I'm, I'm quite a bit more optimistic than, than Taibbi. I do think that there's a lot of just insanity in the center left uh, media sphere and the liberal media sphere that just nobody wants to, to talk about the Russiagate stuff. And, and there's all these claims like there are particular claims that were made about Russiagate that were so, so <laughs> detailed and so laid out. The P-tape. Manchurian candidate mm-hmm. since 1987 Don, what, or whatever Trump's it was. Donald Trump's been, yeah, yeah, Russian agent since 1987. Yeah, unbelievable. And and nobody has apologized. No one's like, no oh, one here's how I no. got this wrong. It's like the Iraq war. Yeah. Yeah. The same people, I mean, John Bolton was on TV the other day on yeah. CNN. And, and it diminishes trust in the institution of, of media as a whole. But the partisan press has been around for a very long time. People have been talking all sorts of BS in partisan presses for a very long time. But obviously, it goes back to the same um, incentive structures we talked about. I have an incentive structure as the editor of a left-wing publication to cater to a base. You two do as well. Um, so do the Wall Street Journal and um, has, has, a, has to cater to their own very particular center-right uh, base. The New York Times audience is largely a liberal audience. They have mm-hmm. to be cognizant of it. So all this media is partisan um, media, and there's less and less broadly accepted national platforms. And this is kind of the, the norm throughout a lot of American politics. We're kind of back in many ways to both the press of the second Gilded Age, the inequality, mm. uh, the, the the first Gilded Age, <laughs> the inequality right. of the first Gilded Age, and uh, some of the hyper-partisanship of the first Gilded Age, including the lack of class politics in that partisanship. Can you actually discern um, the difference between a lot of, uh, besides for maybe the, the populist runs uh, run in the 1890s, uh, uh, you can't really discern the uh, which one's more working class, the um, Republican Party of the late 19th century or the Democratic Party of the late 19th century, because the divisions were on the basis of identity. They were mm. very geographic. Mm. And I have a feeling that we're back in that situation today. We're heading towards that situation where class dealignment means that the Democrats are seen as, oh, this is the party of minorities. This is the party of a segment of the working class in big cities. The Republicans, they're the party of certain segments of big capital. They're the party of uh, some of the working class in rural areas. And that's that's it. And and then the, the, the avenues for our politics are, are, are even more narrow. Let me ask you a very broad question that you can take where you want, but something I've been thinking about and just interested in your view on. What do you what is your definition of patriotism and what do you think about patriotism? Well, I would say that I like the United States of America. Um, I like it despite a lot of the terrible things in the United States of America. And for me, um, I think seeing beneath all the veniality and all the inequality, um, the core of something that could be really great is important because it keeps me going, it keeps me um, optimistic. And also just at a geographic level, uh, it's a beautiful country, right? <laughs> you know, uh, And I think having that mentality and attitude is important to actually do politics because yeah. you have to believe that things could be better and convince yourself that it isn't all um, a crap in order to do do politics. Now, if it becomes a debate about who's the bigger patriot or who's the biggest nationalist, I think that's a debate that the left is going to lose. Um, 
in a intellectual sense, in a moral sense, in every other sense, I don't think there's any more value intrinsically in an American life than a Mexican life mm-hmm. or Jamaican life or or Canadian life or or you know whatever. And I think no no left winger, no internationalist can believe that. We can say that we have within our power the ability to improve the lot of 330 million Americans. So we need to focus and prioritize this while at the same time doing um, what we can to make sure the U.S. empire isn't, you know, raining bombs on people around the world. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty internationalist um, stance. But in other words, I think we need the mentality of like having a positive stance on the world and and not saying F everything as kind of Mm -hmm. our, our politics. But if the debate becomes about who's more committed to nationalism of either a left or right variant, the right's going to win because they honestly do believe that American life is worth, you know, five well, and they'll, Mexican And they'll buy all the, the, all the fairy tale. Mm-hmm. They'll just, you know, they'll promote uncritically. Like the thing that you said about with all the faults and the mm-hmm. failures and the sins and the, you know, the genocide and the slavery and all of that, that's just all erased in their version. You were just reminding me of uh, what the brilliant Dr. Cornell West said. He said, when you think of America... It's everything is American. So Martin Luther King Jr. is American mm-hmm. and the labor movement is American. And then also Donald Trump is mm-hmm. American, mm-hmm. as American as apple pie. Unfortunately, you know, mm-hmm. the Iraq war is American. Like it's all American. So you take it with all the upsides and all of that. But that used to be the progressive view from the left to the, the, the center that America has within it all these different yes. seeds, all these different traditions. The Communist Party would 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 name it's it's like a Paul Revere march and whatever else in the 1930s they would try to find parts of the American tradition uh, to grapple onto some of them were a bit tenuous like a Thomas Jefferson book club to read books Lenin books probably didn't make a lot of sense they had it um whereas Thomas Paine like he was actually one of us right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but but this view of American history that there was good and there was bad and these good and bad things and these different classes and these different forces, these different uh, ideas between the extreme reactionary American slaver class to the people fighting for abolition and fighting to fulfill um, the the you know real enlightenment spirit of the American Revolution with a second American Revolution, our, our Civil War and Reconstruction. This was the common narrative. And I'm afraid now there's two narratives developing, one by the right, which is from the beginning, it was always just bliss. And there is just yeah. this mm-hmm. glorious American tradition mm-hmm. and people who hate Founded it. Founded on equality completely. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Nothing right. weird mm-hmm. in our founding. <laughs> Don't look at the Native American genocide mm-hmm. or slavery. Shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then on the other hand, I think some of the, the 1619 project and, and other right. things, which go to the other extreme of just painting a very Everything's narrow, terrible. Everything's bad. Evil. There's no positive stuff. There's no, nothing in the founding documents that actually is redeemable. Right. And it That's makes our life idea. harder. It makes our life of harder does, as yeah. we're trying to actually, um, you know, reveal some of these, these the truth about American um, history. But we have to say that we've been able to win very significant victories. The modern U.S. left, you could say, started with the abolitionist uh, movement and scored a, a massive um, victory with the the end of uh, of, of slavery, um, uh, massive gains in Reconstruction that were then rolled back. We continued on, and we actually secured some economic security and dignity for working people with the New Deal. We finally finished, uh, uh, or at least continued the legacy 
of the Civil War and Reconstruction with the victory of the Black Freedom Movement in the 1960s. We've continued on to fight for uh, the expansion of rights for LGBT people. To Now we're obviously fighting for justice on the environment. We're fighting for continued racial justice. We're fighting to end this growing economic inequality and restore and expand the victories of the New Deal. I mean, this is a narrative in which the U.S. left exists and plays a role. I think Cornell West captures it perfectly. Right, no yeah. one would accuse Cornell West of ignoring the crimes of the right, U.S. Exactly. Um, empire. But you notice the way he speaks. He really, I think, can communicate with people who disagree with everything that that's he right. says, but they, they they trust his moral conviction. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot. So much of the left is just, I think, snarky and soulless in a way that West and Chomsky and other people right, in that yeah. generation just simply aren't. Mm-hmm. So th- let me ask you. This is final question for me, and then I'll turn it over uh, to Crystal. Um, it's a little bit of a wonky one, but bear with me here. Uh, on the, I like in your writings, and and when I hear you speak, you're actually you have like very positive things to say about social democracy, which I do the mm-hmm. same thing, you know? Um, and there's a lot of people on the left who don't like that for whatever reason we can get into that. But, um, when I think of social democracy and I want you to talk me off the ledge here, cause I have mm-hmm. a belief that's like almost like buying in a little bit to the end of history analysis type thing where part of me fears that, yeah, what if social democracy is as good as we can get? Like, what if that's mm-hmm. as good as as anybody could do? That's the first part of it. Mm-hmm. And the second part of the question is more about meritocracy. When I look at the United States of America, my issue with it is almost that, like, it's very obviously not a meritocracy and we're lied to and people pretend like it is a meritocracy mm-hmm. when it has nothing to do with how, you know, the harder you work, the further you go or whatever it is. And in my opinion, when you look at the social democracies, they've come a lot closer to the idea of setting up an actual meritocracy mm-hmm. where it's like, hey, we'll take mm-hmm. all the basics off the mm-hmm. table, healthcare, education, you're going to have a roof over mm-hmm. your head, you're going to have a certain amount of paid vacation time. And then from there, it's like, mm-hmm. OK, harder you work, the further you go. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about those thoughts? I'll just turn it over. OK, so I think on the first thing. Well, if social democracy is the best we could get, lucky for us, we're going to be busy for the next, like, 80 years. Right, yeah, um, maybe, good point. Yeah, maybe we all live long lives. Right, but, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, we have so far to go until just so that point. And the good news is that even though social democracy, its gains have been rolled back in a lot of even the Nordic uh, countries, they still, uh, the, the, the narrative of retrenchment has kind of been overstated. There's still a lot of social rights that have been uh, mm. preserved. I do think, though, that social democracy contains within it some of the seeds of its undoing or seeds of the role black, but in that it has these, these capitalist elites still have so much power and still have the ability to just take their factories and leave or right, yeah. still have the, the, the victory to when times are bad to fight for a different sort of arrangement um, and, a, and a rollback. So it's really important, I think, that we conceive of a way to go from social democracy to a system of worker ownership, or at least worker control over investment. So I think in order to be the real social democrats to sustain social democracy, we need to go deeper into into democratic um, socialism. But obviously, we have a long way to go um, until there. But the route to both social democracy and democratic socialism is the same road, and it's through class struggle. And that's that's the most important thing. And for people um, who um, like just dismiss it, like I, I think that that's a sign of how distant a lot of the U.S. left is mm. uh, from being embedded in um, ordinary working class struggle and working class life. Because if you could give someone a little bit of bread, a little bit more dignity, a little bit more healthcare, um, yeah, <laughs> healthcare, um, let them eat healthcare. Yes. <laughs> um, 
then I, I think we would have had made a very, very um, massive advance and difference. And, and again, it doesn't derail us from our ultimate uh, goals for those of us who are, are socialists. Um, it's, it's only, I think, a very tiny fringe, I should say, of the U.S. left that believes the worse it gets, the better. Um, mm. And no, the worse it gets... The worse, the worse it gets, it gets literally. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's a tautology. <laughs> yeah, there's no guarantees that that's going to bring you to a better place. Every successful movement of the unemployed, for example, was united with employed working class people in unions. Because in and of itself, the unemployed find it very difficult to organize because they're busy trying to survive. Trying to live, and right. they're busy trying to find a job. And the unemployment uh, movements or charities based on just philanthropy, like, fall apart. Um, very, very quickly. That's a historical um, record. But when unions fight for full employment, what they're doing isn't charity. What they're doing is saying, actually having this really, um, this labor market with so much unemployment is really bad for our bargaining position. And we could expand our unions. And um, yeah, we're probably, we have brothers and sisters and and people in our family are probably unemployed too. So there's a social good to it too. But, but it's this, this glorious kind of um, uh, connection of self-interest with a broader moral um, imperative. And the self-interest part really comes into it if your coalition is actually composed of working class people yeah. who, who gain materially uh, from, from something. And obviously, we have to work with whatever base we have. Um, you know, we, we start with Bernie. We start with, you know, our media platforms, our existing organizations, which are disproportionately um, middle class, but our ultimate goal has to be class reformation and the construction of a politics and win these things long term. On, on meritocracy, I think even in my vision of socialism, there's something like a meritocracy because there'll always be trade offs, right? We want equalities of power. That doesn't necessarily mean total equality of income because we want different things potentially. Mm. I might want to work 25, 30, hours, maybe 10 hours less than you're working, because you choose a little bit more consumption, whereas I value free time. Mm. You know, and I think, I think um, there's other things where we want to know the names of all the scientists who helped develop the coronavirus vaccine, not just the companies they work for, because mm. in a socialist society, we'd want to celebrate achievement, mm. achievement for the social good, but even individual achievement. I think the greatness um, you know, everyone who has ever listened to me knows I just have, a, I rattle off terrible sports analogy, but the greatness of like a Michael Jordan mm. is, yes, I know he was nurtured by society and his family and whatever else, but it's very much a singular mm. individual achievement. Um, I think that's a great thing to celebrate in any sort of um, society that is a meritocratic celebration. Mm. And that doesn't need to be rewarded by him being you know, having a hundred thousand times the wealth of the average right, yeah. uh, American. Or tax, right. tax right. him if, if he mm-hmm. does earn that. Um, you started Jacobin 10 years ago, you said? Yeah. 10 years ago. exactly 10 years ago. What are your reflections on the past 10 years? Well, I think this has been a great period for the U.S. left and that we went from being basically non-existent to being weak. And, uh, <laughs> that that is, I mean, honestly, it's a, a big it's a, accomplishment. It's a big it's accomplishment. True, though, that is a big accomplishment. But we exist on the political <laughs> map, and we have we have a very I'm surrounded by betas. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but we have a tightrope. We have we we have a tightrope to walk. On the one side, we could just totally dissolve into the mainstream 
and accomplish mm. nothing. And we can look at the example of even the the inspiring cases of the first wave of, of black uh, elected political um, figures in, in big um, uh, uh, northern cities, um, the Dinkins of the world and, and, and other people who promised a lot of change, actually really sincerely wanted to make change, but ended up becoming totally just indistinguishable from uh, the democratic mainstream. Right. Dinkins from speaking at um, a Socialist International rally and being at Michael Harrington's funeral to endorsing uh, Michael Bloomberg. You know, he was very old and I hope senile in his last, just just for his sake, so I could forgive, you know, this this act. But that trajectory is something to really avoid. But on the other hand is this, uh, the trajectory of, of marginality, where we don't want to be just a fringe subculture. And I'm afraid that the left might have gotten to a point where we don't know that we're a subculture. Whereas when I joined the left, it was so obvious how weak we were. I'm afraid we'll rise to the size where it becomes possible to basically live within the subculture of the left and to feel like we're we're doing something, but to make no really wider imp- imprint on American politics. And I think we're going to not fall into those those traps, but that's that's the constant battle for us between margin and 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 mainstream and we need to in other words change the mainstream by engaging with reality as it is Mm. but not lose track of what's distinct about our politics and our our vision for for change i have one more random question for you which is um how did you come up with the aesthetic of jacobin which i think is so beautiful and so unique well that is ramike forbes our uh, creative director um, who shares our our politics? Actually, quite quite a good writer. You should you should read his explanation for why he chose the kind of uh, initial black Jacobin logo. And his idea was, um, you know, he was born in Jamaica, and his idea was he wanted an embrace of the Enlightenment, and and he found in the Haitian Revolution and a lot of the the I, I ideas of that that period a not agreeing with people who say that the legacy of the Enlightenment, the legacy of Marxism is a European legacy, but basically saying it belongs to the world and it finds its manifestation across the across the world. But but the actual design, that's Rumike Forbes and that's um, you know our, our graphic designers at, at Jacobin. I think what I deserve credit for is I know what I don't know. <laughs> I basically, it's very, very it's hands off. Skill. You do that. I don't even yeah. look at the covers before until like a really? few hours before we go to um, press. Yeah, I trust... Trust Ramike, trust trust the team. It's worked out well, and it's less less work for me. They too. do an excellent <laughs> yeah. job. So tell everybody where they could find you. Uh, you should check out Jacobin, jacobinmag.com. Um, you should. Uh, I recently told people to download my book illegally, and I got I got uh, uh, an angry email or kind okay. of a joking angry. Download email it legally or purchase download it, it legally <laughs> or, or, or or purchase it. Though if you do have access to Google and a computer, you know it's it's it's, it's around it out. There. and it's yeah. called it's called the Socialist Manifesto: The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. Yeah, and it's a great yeah. book. I've read it. Um, we had John Risen to mm-hmm. talk about it, and it really is super helpful. And I said this earlier. I'll say it again, though. Um, for me, Jacobin was really important and really formative mm-hmm. because. I just didn't really know that there were other there was like other expanse of the political spectrum that I was allowed to occupy. <laughs> and so, I'm serious. And so it was it's been really important for me over the past 10 years. And really, thank you for that. I'm really I excited. love Jacobin because you guys did a great profile on me. We bought him. Me off. too. No big deal. Yeah, but it was because, yeah, well, well um, hey, every uh, word was true. Every, every, what am I, I going to say? All the, all I'm amazing. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that, that you two are doing this show. It's like like uh, 
Yeah, it's it's like a a, a rap super group or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but um, oh can I be Tupac? No, I don't want to die. I don't want to be Tupac. Uh, just don't, <laughs> don't be the firm. Be, be a successful one. I don't know. Um, okay. Well, Oscar, Bos- thank you. So great to see you. We appreciate you. Thanks, Thanks for having me. So that was Bhaskar Sankara of Jacobin Magazine. And um, he's kind of a perfect person to have at the end of this completely insane week because he does a great job of taking all of these crazy events that fill you with lots of emotions and putting them in context, stepping back with an analytical mind and putting it in the framework of the broader struggle. Yeah, I mean, uh, the thing I really like about Bhaskar is that he's... um I mean, he's an old school labor lefty, effectively. That's the sense I get when we talk to him that, you know, he, his his politics are very similar to my politics. They're very similar to your politics. They don't say that class is the only thing that matters, but it certainly is more of an emphasis on that compared to other things. And listen, I mean, a lot of the stuff, some of his takes, I was a little bit surprised that, you know, like his take on impeachment, for example. Yeah. I would say that when it comes to 25th Amendment versus impeachment versus do nothing, I'm as agnostic as it gets. Like, I don't know what the right course is, but what he says is basically like everything else will make it worse if you just sit around for two weeks he doesn't think anything else like this is going to happen again. Like, that was it. The flare-up was there. Now it's gone. And he had, Trump had to do his, like, little apology and throw his own supporters under the bus. So it's like, if you just sit it out for the next two weeks, it's over, son. It's done. And he's if he runs in 2024, he already shot himself in the foot. It's over. He, like, he's not going to win again. So his point is, why divide more on the way out the door and, like, solidify the divide when now's a time where the real divide we should be having is the haves and the have-nots, or the elites versus the workers. You know what I mean? Right. His major point, which I think is really interesting, even though I think I'm in a different place than he is ultimately on this question, but is he's very clear on where the polarization should be, right? He believes in a polarized politics, Mm -hmm. but one that's polarized along class lines. Mm -hmm. And so he sees any sort of Trump removal from office as exacerbating a polarization that is ultimately not helpful. That's really much more along racial lines and education lines than it is along the class lines that he wants to see it, although these things are all, of course, interrelated. Um, You know, I sort of feel like, in a sense, it's hard to predict what the ultimate outcome, if Trump was actually removed from office, which I think both of us believe is not going to happen anyway. But let's imagine that that was a possibility. Like, I think it's a little bit hard to predict where things would go from there because, number one, that means he couldn't run for office again. And so he is kind of then officially off the table in terms of a usable threat from the Democratic Party. Like they can't make him into the boogeyman that he's been Mm -hmm. for the past four years if he's politically done. Right. So that would be one positive outcome. But he's saying basically like, look, whether he stays or goes, ultimately, they're still going to use this threat. They're still going to use him and his movement. And if you have an even more inflamed division on that side, it's going to be even more effective of a weapon to be used across the left. Right. And also, I think there's a fair point to be made that you don't want to make these decisions necessarily with the consequences being the first thing in mind. The first thing in mind should be the principle, right? The principle of it. And like, was there actually a violation of the law or was there actually something that crosses a very clear line? And arguably here there was. I mean, you and I were having this conversation before, but, you know, I feel like Trump always gives himself just enough wiggle room mm-hmm. where it's, you know, he says both things at the same time. And then if you try to get him on it, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. If you quote 
everything I said every step of the way. I said you got to protect our law enforcement. I said you got to do the right. I said you got to be peaceful. So I don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't egging him on. I was saying the opposite. You know what I mean? Well, it's not only that. He's like a classic abuser where he Absolutely. goes all the way up to the line where you're like, that's it. Yep. I'm packing my bags. I'm taking the kids. He's like, I'm no, baby, out. wait, 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 baby. Don't go yet. Come I don't back. Know. It's going to be different. <laughs> gonna, I'm gonna, better. Here's how I'm yeah. going to change. Here's what I'm going to get you. It's going to be. And, you know, I mean, he, this is this is the thing that he's expert at. I mean, really, how many times have we been in this place where we're like, I think this time may really be different. Like the people Proud Boys really thing. Pe- stand back and stand by. Charlottesville, and, yeah. Proud Boys, yep. the Insurrection Act, like right. calling in the you know military on the peaceful protesters. Yeah, all of this stuff, and he goes right up to the edge, and you're like, this time is really different, and then he walks it back. Now, look, in a sense. I actually do think this time is a little bit different. His approval rating is going to plummet. His 100%. approval rating is going to plummet. Yeah. He actually had cabinet members resign. Yes. He actually had Mitch McConnell and not like, you know, Mitt Romney type members of the Senate or Ben Sass type members of the Senate be like, this is fucked up. What are you doing? So it was different in the response in a sense, but also critically, this man now lost the Republican Party, the House. The Senate. Right, right. And the presidency. So, so the aura of invincibility is dead and gone. Yes. And yeah. if you're in a, a position in the Republican Party where you benefit from the ascendance of the Republican Party, so somebody like Mitch McConnell, and you're looking at what this man has done to your own personal position and the party that you are part of, you've got to be thinking, like, this has been a complete disaster. We've lost everything now at this point. You know, you know what it is, Crystal? It's that now— the loss of the suburbs is complete. Like, that's what happened in Georgia. Total loss of the suburbs. The suburbs are still terrified of Donald Trump. Yeah. And then the very next thing Trump is in the news for is the thing that will fully lose him the suburbs. So now all you have is that hardcore 30% Trump base. But that's it. Just that 30% Trump base. And they might be ride or die for him. But it's exactly like the thing you said when Trump threatened to invoke the Insurrection Act. Where you were like, this is the thing. Because what happened is in the polls, immediately after that event, we gassed peaceful protesters. So you could do a photo op with a Bible. That was insanity. His numbers plummeted. Because what happened was those suburban voters, they actually believe in law and order. And they saw Donald Trump being the violator of law and order in that instance. Just like this. Even though he spoke out of both sides of his mouth and he did the weasel words, everybody knows what he was doing. What he was doing was like, hey, you know. I'm uh, fraudulent election. I'm getting screwed here. Maybe you got to take matters into your own hands. Maybe you got to be strong and tough. Oh, don't go too far. But yeah, if you got to do what you got to do, then you got to do it. You know what I mean? So it was like, it's just that, that little bit too far where suburban America is gone now. And like you said, if even Mitch McConnell is now making the calculation of like, I got to distance myself from this, then I'll tell you what, Trump 2024 is donezo at this point. I can't imagine what a searing experience it was for those senators and members of Congress, all of them, but especially the ones like Holly and Holly Cruz, and Cruz who asked for this shit, who helped foment this. Holly out there with the the fist pump to the rageful that murderous picture is going to haunt him forever, and it should. And I can't get. O- I will never get over. And I'm sure this is unbelievably searing, not just for Mike Pence, but for every Republican who's ever indulged Donald Trump. Like Donald Trump literally sicked a murderous mob on his own vice president. And I mean, they turned on Pence in a day. I'm still amazed by that. That literally happened. Yes. And the reporting is. 
He didn't inquire about Pence's safety. Mm. And the Pence people feel like this was all actually a setup to make him the fall guy so that the rage of the crowd would would target him. That's who you're dealing with here. So in that sense, I do feel like it's a little bit different. And people who have been playing footsie with all of this stuff on the right may rethink some of their actions in the future. And look, with him out of the presidency, they'll have more of an opportunity to sideline him as much as they can. The thing about Pence is an interesting example because the thing I keep thinking about is how he was incredibly loyal to Trump every single step of the way. And it literally had it got to the point where they were telling him, listen, dude, you got to go out there and say that Trump won the election and object. Meanwhile, the whole thing in Congress is symbolic. The election's already done. The Electoral College certified it. What they're doing there is just tradition. It's just symbolic. There's no there there. Did they really think that Mike Pence could go out there and be like, I don't agree with the outcome, and Mike Pence and can single-handedly I, override this Mike election? Mike Pence now have magical powers to change the outcome. And they turn on him over that? Over that? That's yeah. the craziest thing I've ever heard. How far gone do you have to be? Has Trump convinced himself that Mike Pence really had the ability to overturn the election and have all those people who are out there who are drunk on One American News Network and Fox? Did they really think Mike Pence could go out there and be like, yeah, I'm just I'm overturning the election? Yeah. Apparently. Yes, apparently they, apparently they thought that. That's but it's, unbelievable to it's me. It's really interesting, though, to hear Bosker say very plainly, like, the thing we need to understand in this era that we're coming into, moving past these Trump years, not that Trump is going to be going anywhere, really, um, is we need to make it really clear the distance between the Democratic establishment and the country, between the Democratic establishment and the views that, you know, we hold and that would be good for the working class He just had a real clarity around, like, that's the goal in the project of these next four years. They are enemy. They are now enemy number one. And that's where we need to be trading our fire. Crystal, we need a new FDR. How many times do I have to say this? (laughs) Like, that's what we need. Because, you know, I learned this year just how much power the president has, even more than I thought. Like, obviously, the commander-in-chief angle is huge. That alone is everything. Yeah. But then beyond that, like that David Dan article in The American Mm -hmm. Prospect, where he was like, actually, there's a really solid legal argument where you could do Medicare for all because of COVID. You could just be like, hey, there's an emergency. I have the authority to expand Medicare under this circumstance to everybody. And you just do it. Like, all the power that you have through executive orders. You can abolish student loan debt through executive orders. I didn't know that either until this year. Right. Because a lot of the debt is held by the government. Right. So you have all these things and, you know, that's why it does kind of drive me crazy a little bit, even though I do the exact same thing. Like all we do is speculate all day long and theorize as to how the left can gain power and what's the best strategic move. But really, at the end of the day, it's like if you run a really good lefty who can win the presidential election, we're off to the races, baby. But that's, you know, we're sitting around and wasting time and we have nobody, no idea who's next and and who actually can make a good run at it well kalinsky we're all wait, awaiting your 2024 oh good. announcement chucky schumer's scared oh good <laughs> <laughs> um so great talking to bosker if you haven't checked down jacobin make sure you do that if you have the means subscribe because they really do incredible work and, but um, but if yeah. you have to make a choice subscribe to Crystal oh. Kyle and friends on Substack before you subscribe to jacobin i'm sorry i had to say it <laughs> yeah and, um i guess we should go over so 
As a reminder, this one's going up on Kyle's page, Secular Talk um, channel on YouTube, completely free, all that stuff, uh, as few ads as Google will allow uh, yes, us. Yes, I turned off all the monetization <laughs> for us, but sometimes Google forces ads for themselves. So The, the audio will always be 100% free and 100% ad-free. You can get that on Substack, or you can get it on any of your normal platforms. We're, we're on Apple Podcasts now. Which is exciting. Yes. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. So all of the normal places, you can now find the audio and... Um, the video drops day early on Substack, audio on Saturday. I think yes. that's the deal. And if you want to tip us five bucks a month on Substack and get the video a day early. Yeah. I have to say, I think we were both pretty floored by the response to oh, the first amazing. episode. Almost 400,000 views just on YouTube. You know, tens of thousands more when you add in the other audio platforms. I mean, it's amazing. We love you guys. Thank you so much for supporting us. Um, and we're really looking forward to our guests that we have coming up soon. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you guys. Appreciate you guys.